All right, as you're making your way back to your seats, if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John, have you, if you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at New Breed, uh, one of the pastors here at New Breed. But we are so thankful that you came to celebrate with us what God is doing. And we're, we're in the midst of a series right now through the month of December, a series uh, that's entitled The Word Became Flesh. And in this series, we're, we're looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and we're taking sections of that over the next few weeks and diving into it and exploring the question from John 1, 1 through 5, who is this word? Who is this word? And this morning, we're going to continue in John chapter 1, looking at verses 6 through 9. And I know many of you just sat down, but it's all right. We could use the exercise. I'm going to invite you to stand one more time out of reverence for God's word as we read John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 and reading through John writes. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Word expected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would speak. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, for we, your people, are listening. Give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The word expected. And you know, when my, when my, I had to check to make sure she didn't stay, because if not, we were going to do a whole different intro to this sermon. But... When my oldest daughter, Emery, finds something that she really likes, she always wants to talk about it. I mean, nonstop talk about it. Some of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. When they find that thing that they like, all they want to do is talk about it. She has this excitement over things, and she wants you to have the same excitement about whatever it is that she's excited about. Oftentimes, with Emery, it's a game that she's really itches on to, and it's all she wants to do. It's all she wants to talk about. It actually happened this week. She said to me, Dad, uh, I love this game. So she was talking about educational Minecraft. That's the game. And she said, Dad, I, I love this game. Did you love this game when you were a kid? See, that's what she always asks. If she loves something, she wants to know if I love find them, that when I was their age... I didn't have an iPad to play Minecraft on. I did not have a cell phone that I could make phone calls on or text, let alone play whatever popular game YouTube convinced them to download this week. And when I remind her of this, she always asks, well, how did you talk to people? And I do have to remind and communication was a little different. Some of you may have forgotten about it. Some of you all might not know what I'm talking about because you're not quite old enough, but I, I didn't have a cell phone through high school. And we didn't have them. We could still communicate, though. It wasn't the Stone Age. But I explained to my kids that you couldn't text someone while you were on the go in the house. That's what made vacation so amazing. No one could call you. No, yeah, and that's a, that's a subtweet for some of y'all who always call when I'm on vacation. No one could get in touch with you. 
But as I was reflecting on her being shocked by the fact that our communication was so different when I was her age, with John, she was as well. I started to think about how messages, important things were communicated, because there was no email, there were no text messages. And, and as, as you know, that when the kings and the queens of old, when they needed to communicate, even during John's day, when they needed to communicate, they had to send messengers thousands of miles to proclaim the king's wishes. We, we talked about that in Esther. Do you remember that? There were a lot of decrees that happened when we were studying Esther. And any time a decree went out, uh, scripture records for us that, that King Ahasuerus would send messengers to all the provinces to make sure they knew about the decree and to, knew about, and to, and to know about the edict. But these messengers had to work out deals of an arrangement with the authority of the king. Some messengers had the responsibility of traveling ahead of a king or a queen to make arrangements for their arrival. Typically, the messengers were received with a little bit of respect, not because of who they were per se, but because of who they represented and on whose behalf they spoke. And in verses 6 through 9, what we just read, we we encounter John, John, I'm talking about the author of the book, or John the Baptist as we work through this, but, but we encounter John, and John the Baptist, he was a messenger. John was a one who would come before, not just any king, but the king of kings, to announce his arrival, to prepare the way, and to proclaim the greatest news of all of eternity. Now, I'm going to be honest with you here at the front end. For the longest time, I thought that these verses were just out. This feels so unnatural to me. Because in verses 1 through 5, what we looked at last week, you have John, the gospel writer, revealing to us who this word is. He's revealing the divine nature. He's revealing the word's creative strength. He's, he's revealing the salvation that is coming as the word is made flesh. And then, and then in verse 10, it speaks of the word's reception in this world. It speaks of those who rejected the light and also those who would recognize the light. But sandwiched between these explanations of the word of Jesus where we stop thinking about the Word and start thinking about John the Baptist. It's just always seemed a little out of place to me. But the more I started to look at it, the more I started to study it, the more I saw the beauty of it, because even though it's talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist not the focus at all. You see, what John the Gospel writer knows is that by examining, he wants to develop in us this anticipation, this expectation for the coming Jesus. He's building an expectation for what we'll ultimately study when we get to verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this morning, as we consider this idea of the word expected, specifically that John the Baptist knew, and here's my hope this morning. I'm going to tell you on the front end what my aim is as we look at the three things that John the Baptist knew. First, I hope that we would marvel at who Jesus is. But second, that we would know that what we are called to in light of who Jesus is, is reflected in what John knew. See, here's the thing. The three things that John knows to be true about himself are three things that we need to remember to be true about our. Here's the first thing that John knew. John knew what he was. John knew what he was. Look again at verses 6 and 7. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name 
was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. As a witness. John was a messenger. John knew this about himself, which is why a few verses later in verse 23, when, when the Pharisees are trying to figure out who he is, he says, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah through 4. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He, he will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness, and John the Baptist he understood what he was. He was a person who was meant to be a messenger of the king. He was a person who was to prepare the people for Christ's arrival. But there are a couple of very significant things about John the Baptist that we often overlook. You might have been thinking, he's an eight locust, strange man, lived in the desert. We know all that. But, but there is some incredible significance to John the Baptist preparing the way as a messenger for the Lord. You see, here's what's significant about it. First, we have to remember that John the Baptist himself was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the fulfillment of Micah chapter 4 verse, or I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, where Malachi before the great and the terrible day of the Lord comes. Now we know that the first prophet Elijah had already come and he had already gone. And God says, I'm going to send another Elijah, and I'm going to send him before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But here's the thing. John likely didn't know that he was the fulfillment of the, the second Elijah. And we see this even in John chapter 1, verse 21, when the, the, the Pharisees ask him if he is a prophet, and John the Baptist's response is no. He's not trying to deceive them. He's not trying to lie to them. He doesn't know that he's the fulfillment of Malachi 4, verse 5. But Jesus tells us in Matthew, and Jesus says, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now, here's why this is so significant as well. Not only because John the Baptist is the fulfillment of prophecy, but because through John the Baptist, God is once again speaking. And we can't miss this, right? In Malachi, Malachi 4, or 5, yeah, 4 verses 5 and 6, look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their father, fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, Malachi is the Bible. It's also the last book of the Old Testament chronologically as well meaning that Malachi is the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet to be a mouthpiece of God to God's people, and then God's silent. For 400 years, God was silent. And we've got to understand that during this 400 years period in the life of the people of God, and through all of it, God was silent. They were under the rule of the Greeks and Alexander the Great. They experienced wars and loss, and God was silent. And then Alexander the Great died, and the Jewish people came under Ptolemy's control. And then in the 2nd century B.C., Ptolemy's 
regime was defeated by the Seleucids in modern-day Syria, and the Jewish people came under another ruler. Lucid king Antichus IV Epiphanes became, began a campaign to Hellenize the Jewish people. He wanted to make the Jewish people Greek. And what that meant was forfeiting their religion, forfeiting their God, forfeiting their custom, forfeiting their culture. And, and this led to a rebellion by a priest named Matt, uh, Mattathias. And we call it the, the Maccabean Revolt. And it up against 60,000 Seleucids. It was bloody, it was violent, and God was silent. When Antichus died in 164 BC, the Jews regained religious freedom. But the struggle for freedom continued, and in 142 BC, the Seleucid king Demetrius had a little win, and God was silent. And they enjoyed freedom for about 80 years until Rome came, and Rome took everything over. And God was silent through it all. For 400 years, God was silent. No prophets, no judges, no As a fulfillment of prophecy, as a prophet himself, and once again, the voice of God was heard. And when God spoke, it was not a message of political deliverance. It was not that God was going to deliver them from Rome. It wasn't a message that God was... It wasn't that message, no. When God spoke, it was a declaration of something so much better. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then John, in John 1, verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Maybe God speaking after 400 years of silence didn't, didn't really hit you like it hit me, but I'd be half a preacher if I didn't press into this a little bit. You see, there's something in that for us. The message of Jesus' birth, the Christmas story of the Word made flesh is a testimony to us that even in the midst of God's silence, it does not mean that God has forgotten you. Right? Like, I tend to do fine when God says yes or no. I'm good if God doesn't give me what I want. I am. I really am. Like, sometimes I fight like a little kid for like a day or so, but, but if I know that God has said no and I can hear him say no, I'm good with that. If God says yes, like, like I'm, I'm good with that too, but what's the third answer that God sometimes gets? Wait, but you know that the come and I can struggle with that because my sinful mind runs to the God's forgotten about me. God, right, Asaph in Psalm 77, God's forgotten to be good. His compassion is shut off. And for me, the silence of God can be the most deafening noise I hear. I'm often tempted to believe that God is absent. I'm tempted to believe that after 400 years of silence is that it doesn't matter the pain, it doesn't matter the struggle. Our God is a God who never forgets. John the Baptist is a reminder to us that after silence, God can bring about the greatest deliverance. Because after God was silent for 400 years, they, they knew of God speaking to Abraham. They knew that Moses encountered the word in the burning bush. They, they knew that God had communicated with the people of God throughout, the his, throughout their history. And yet for some reason, for 400 years, God was silent, never raised up a prophet, never raised up a judge. I have to believe that they started asking some hard questions. But after God was silent for 400 years, he spoke through John and the declaration. 
John was a messenger. Now, I told you at the beginning that these three things that John knew about himself are three things that we need to know about ourselves as well. Because John's not the only messenger. You and I who are in Christ are also called to be messengers. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.20 reminds us of. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Our purpose, brothers and sisters, on this earth is to represent the kingdom we belong to. And our kingdom is not of this world. We are to be God's messengers on earth. That's our primary purpose. Evaluate faithfulness by whether or not we got the job we always wanted, by whether or not our bank accounts look the way we want them to look, by whether or not we have the relationships we want. We evaluate our faithfulness by whether or not we are faithfully being God's messengers wherever he has placed us, by whether or not we are acting as Christ's ambassadors in a land that is not our home. King. This leads to the second thing that John knew about himself. Not only did John know what he was, but John knew who he was. He knew who he was. More specifically, he knew who he was not. Look back at verse 8. It says, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. He about the light. It's rather interesting that the author made note of the fact that John the Baptist was not the light. He made it a point to communicate that when he's writing about him. And part of the reason that he does that, it's not because John didn't know that he wasn't the light. Like John wasn't 6 and 27. John says, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water. He says, someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal straps I am not worthy to untie. John knew he wasn't the light. John knew he was not the savior of the world. John knew that he was only a messenger. So the question then is, why did the author John feel? And to answer that, I got to be honest, we have to speculate a little bit, but I think it's a likely speculation. I think that the author of the gospel, that John, while writing, likely knew that there were some people in Ephesus who were disciples of John the Baptist that thought that he was more than what he was. I think John, the author of the gospel, knew about the instance that was recorded in Acts 19, which says, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. So, so Paul's in Ephesus, and it says, he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked them, into what then were you baptized? And this has with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. So, so in Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters these people who were basically looking to John the Baptist for their salvation. They were disciples not of Jesus, but of John the Baptist. And I don't think this is what John the Baptist wanted, but it just happened. And so the author wants to remind the reader, and again, there is some great truth was location for us in that point first it is a reminder to us that there is one person we should be seeking to make much of with our lives and it's not us there is one person that we should be seeking to make much of with our entire life and it's not us 
And listen, while that might sound simple, like you expect to hear that at church, it is a very needed reminder in you. Because this makes you happy. It's about what you want out of life. It's about your comfort and your ease, your well-being. Like, right, what's the buzzword right now? Like, toxic people, right? If it's not good for you, cut them out of, their, cut them out of your life. That's the message of the day. I just don't see it in the Bible. It's not about you. It's never been about you. It's always been about making much of Jesus. And sometimes making much of Jesus means dwelling in close. I'm off of it. The story of Christmas is one of Jesus modeling something completely different than the message of our world. That it's not about you. Right? Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. That's amazing. It is amazing that Jesus, that the word would become flesh. And I just want to remind you this morning that the Christian life we are called to is a life where you are not first. It is a life where we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It is a life that will cost you earthly success and accolades. It is a life that will bring persecution and struggle, but it is a life that is worth it. Because the Christian life is one that believes that the greatest need we have has been met in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel that we believe. That the greatest need we have is a bank account that is full of money. It'd be nice, but it's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is not to have the perfect marriage, though it would be nice. Your greatest need is not to have comfort and ease. It's not to have a safe job, the house with the white picket fence. It's, it's not it. Your greatest need is salvation. Because the Bible tells you, right, like there are too many people running around thinking they can thank God in an acceptance speech and God's good with them. Like our sin separates us from him. And we are by nature, the Bible tells us, children of wrath. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment, right? Our world doesn't like that message. You deserve everything good. And the Bible says you deserve hell. There's a contrast. But the beautiful message is that though God should have rightly destroyed us, he loved us so much that the word became flesh, that the Son of God wrapped himself, though he was not sinful. He kept the law perfectly, fulfilled it perfectly, was the only person who did not deserve punishment, and yet he willingly died on a cross in your place. We believe that he died on that cross, but three days later, God raised him from the dead, declaring to us that salvation had been won. You see, this Jesus who died bids us come and die and find that we might truly live. But there's another reminder for us with our lives. Not only about us, but, but this is actually John putting into the text the reminder that John was not the light and likely speaking to that situation in Acts 19. It is a, a reminder not to make heroes out of the wrong people. Not to make heroes out of fallen men and women. Like we live in a celebrity-driven culture, don't we? Everybody wants to be an influencer. 
Everybody wants someone to look at them and to see them. And we tend to have a propensity to to look up to and elevate people more than we should. And let let me say this. There is nothing inherently wrong with admiring people who are worth admiring, but the problem comes when we start to place our hope in those people. And I think that there is no arena of life that has felt the sting of that more than the church and after prominent christian has fallen for a whole host of reasons and the danger for us is that so many have placed their faith in those people and so when those people fall it has devastating consequences We are watching in real time in the American church as person after person. Because the people who claim to represent Jesus failed them. And they placed their faith in those people rather than Jesus. Here is my plea. No person. You have to remember that no person but Jesus is the light. No person but Jesus is guaranteed to never fail you through 10. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. And then he says this, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. There is only one who is the light of this world. Darkness has to flee. There is only one who will never leave and never forsake you and will eternally satisfy the longing of your heart. There's only one, and it's Jesus. Jesus took on flesh. He knows your struggles and your trials. He knows your joys and your pains. He knows what it is to be tempted. He experienced life in this quality. Yet he remains and your hope. Don't place your faith in anyone else. Here's the final thing that John knew. John knew his purpose. And this, this bill was, and as a result of him being a messenger, he knew he had a purpose. And look at, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John knew his purpose, and he did. Look down at verse 29. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was to proclaim the fact that salvation had come. He was not the first to proclaim the word made flesh. In fact, John was the last He was the last prophet to declare that salvation was coming. He's not the last prophet ever because many have come after him, but he was the last prophet before Jesus came. And John, like all those, was coming. And I don't think we sometimes grasp the gravity of that purpose. Because you do know that all of the Old Testament screams to us that Jesus is coming. It's the message of the Bible. 
It was declared in Genesis 3 when Eve was declared in Numbers 24, 17, when Moses writes, a star will come from Jacob and a scepter will rise from Israel. It was declared in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin will conceive and his son and have a son and his name will be Emmanuel. It was declared in Micah 5, 2, that the child would be born in Bethlehem. It was declared 53, 3, that there would be no earthly grandeur about him, but rather he would be despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who who knew what sickness was. He was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised and we we didn't value him. And what John is declaring is that finally, after thousands of years, after the word had become flesh. And as Isaiah declares to us, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, and Peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God has kept his promises. And John is a witness. And he was silent. God has never wavered in doing what he said that he would do. And so as we, as we reflect during this season on the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, born in a little town of Bethlehem, as the hymn writers say, not with fanfares from above and not with scenes of glory, but a humble gift of love. You have a purpose. We have a purpose to celebrate and declare like the prophets of old that God keeps his promises. That Jesus has come and he has brought with him salvation and hope. That baby born in Bethlehem was no ordinary child. God, ever lead father. Prince of Peace. And I'm convinced that if God has been that good to keep his word, the least we could do is tell somebody about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. Testimony of the fact that you are a God who keeps his promises. And during this season, when we, when we celebrate Christmas and Christ coming into this world, that babe in a manger is a testimony to us that though promises were made thousands of years ago against you, turned away time and time again, you never forgot. And even when we deserved hell, You never forgot. And so, Lord, in the midst of all of the busyness of this season, I pray that we would make it a point and that we wouldn't stop there, God, but that we would, like those who have gone before us, understand that we are left here to be your messengers, that we have the responsibility and the joy to proclaim that the Word became flesh that he lived the perfect life 
And he died in our place to pay the debt for our sins. I pray that we would testify that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. And that even with the reminder that we celebrated this morning through baptism, we would be refreshed and we would be renewed in our belief that you are still saving. That that babe in a manger, that its time in this world was not changing lives. Because of that, God, we have a hope that is inexpressible. A joy that cannot be quenched by the things of this world. So as we look back to the first coming, I pray that we would proclaim that our King is coming again. And that like John, we would prepare the way. Right? And all God people, God's people said, Amen.